This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma. And I'm Liam. Today we're focusing on cardiovascular risk factors for people with type 2 diabetes and the best practice approaches to reduce these risks. We'll begin as usual with a brief overview of current guidelines and evidence on this topic before joining Professor Naveed Sattar for a discussion of how to implement these recommendations into real clinical practice. Professor Sattar is Professor of Metabolic Medicine at the University of Glasgow and his disclosures are available in the episode notes where you can also find all the references that will be discussed today. Cardiovascular complications are a major risk in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Over time, chronic hyperglycemia leads to vascular damage through vascular inflammation, vasoconstriction, thrombosis and atherogenesis. Furthermore, in type 2 diabetes, several other risk factors are often abnormal in the pre-diabetes phase, such as blood pressure, lipid levels and BMI. As a result, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of mortality for people with diabetes. A study of the entire population resident in Scotland by David McAllister and colleagues found that the incidence of heart failure hospitalisation was double that of people without diabetes. While elevated blood glucose leads to vascular damage, unfortunately normalisation of HbA1c may not undo damage already done. There is a legacy effect described by Merlin Thomas in his 2014 review, whereby poor glycemic control contributes to higher cardiovascular risk later in the diabetes disease course, even if glucose is later well controlled. So, while early and adequate glucose control is important for long-term cardiovascular risk reduction, the other factors affecting risk of cardiovascular disease should also be considered. These include blood pressure, blood lipids, body weight, smoking and choice of pharmacotherapy. Firstly, let's look at blood pressure. The 2019 ESC guidelines developed in collaboration with the EASD recommends a systolic target of 130 millimetres of mercury and in people who can tolerate it, a target between 120 and 130. For those aged 65 or older, this target is to a range of between 130 and 139. The guideline recommends those with hypertension should be given guidance on lifestyle interventions to reduce blood pressure and that evidence strongly supports giving these patients ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. The same guidelines recommend an individualised target for blood lipids depending on the individual's risk. Risk level is now defined by three categories, namely very high risk, that is those with established cardiovascular disease, other organ damage or three or more of the following risk factors, advanced age, hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity or smoking. Those classified as high risk have had diabetes for 10 or more years and have one of the risk factors just mentioned. Finally, patients who are under 50 years old who have had diabetes for less than 10 years are considered at moderate risk. Those at very high risk should target LDLC below 1.4 millimoles per litre and an overall concentration reduction of at least 50%. People at high risk should target an LDLC 
of below 1.8 millimoles per litre and an overall concentration reduction of at least 50%. And those at moderate risk should target LDLC of below 2.6 millimoles per litre. To reduce smoking, the guidelines recommend that all people with diabetes be given structured advice to guide smoking cessation. And finally, the choice of pharmacotherapy is a topic that has seen a lot of new evidence and related guideline updates in the last two years, with a wealth of data published on the cardiovascular benefits of GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. For people with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or heart failure, or who have indicators of high risk, the 2019 update to the ADA-EASD consensus report recommended that after first-line therapy of lifestyle interventions of metformin, a cardioprotective agent should be offered, and that this should be done independently of HbA1c or the patient's distance from their target. Specifically, a GLP-1 receptor agonist is preferred in people with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, such as prior myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke or unstable angina, or in those with indicators of high risk, specifically age above 55 years, with coronary, carotid or lower extremity artery stenosis of above 50%, left ventricular hypertrophy, EGFR below 60 or albuminuria. SGLT2 inhibitors are preferred in patients where heart failure or chronic kidney disease is present. More recently, the 2021 ADA Standards of Care have recommended that the decision to offer a cardioprotective agent should also be independent of metformin use, bringing this guideline closer in line with the 2019 ESC guideline, which recommended starting GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT2 monotherapy before considering metformin in patients with ASCVD or who are at high or very high cardiovascular risk. So while these guidelines do offer some specific advice on managing cardiovascular risk, what should this look like in real-world practice? Joining us to discuss this question is Naveed Sitar, Professor of Metabolic Medicine at the University of Glasgow. Professor Sitar, thank you very much for joining us today. So firstly, considering the different cardiovascular targets recommended by guidelines, how do you think these should be approached? Is it a question of simultaneous targeting of blood pressure, lipids and everything else? Or do you prefer more of a one at a time strategy? Okay, um, when when we have uh, patients newly diagnosed with diabetes, we recognise that uh, whilst the diabetes is diagnosed by hyperglycemia, that many patients are clearly overweight uh, or have a BMI that puts them into the obese range. Um, so clearly lifestyle uh, management is important. Um, but at the same time, they usually have um, a higher cardiovascular risk driven by uh, also having a higher than normal uh, or healthy lipid levels and higher than um, Blood, higher blood pressure than we would like them to be. Um, about five to ten years ago, we would automatically put anyone with type 2 diabetes diagnosed with type 2, any person, um, who uh, onto a statin. But uh, increasingly, we, we've kind of gone back to looking at a risk score. Um, so the reality is someone who, who's newly diagnosed with diabetes who didn't know that they had any other risk factors could find themselves being... Um, put on a cholesterol tablet, so a statin, um, if they have high blood pressure, an antihypertensive, and of course, um, depending on the glucose levels, 
often, more often than not, they would be recommended for metformin. So they could certainly be on three, uh, potentially four tablets uh, when they were on none. But the other reality is, of course, many patients uh, often have hypertension before they get diagnosed with diabetes or they have um, sort of high cardiovascular risk before they get diagnosed with diabetes. So they may already be on one or two of these tablets already. So it's not necessarily that all patients have to be put on everything at the same time because many are on, on them already because some of the same risk factors that predict cardiovascular disease also increase the risk for diabetes. So that would be obesity and hypertension, uh, you know, are linked to high risk of heart disease and of diabetes, although with a different um, level of association. Um, but nevertheless, that it's it's common practice, and I think we know it's relatively, you know, it's safe to start people on statins, antihypertensives, and metformin uh, as an example at the same time. The good, the important thing is education, explaining to the to the individual who's been newly diagnosed why we would want to put them on all these three medications or, um, you know, or the mix of medications and why it's important um, that they are adhere to these uh, and that they are safe um, in the main, you know, and um, and that we will do all the relevant monitoring to make sure that they're completely safe and that they will protect their hearts and their uh, and their blood vessels and their brains um, because people with diabetes clearly having a mix of risk factors are at elevated cardiovascular risk, are at elevated stroke risk. Um, and that's, you know, you know, the reality. That's what we have to do. And secondly, looking at lifestyle interventions, which are a key part of any cardiovascular risk reduction strategy, are there any particular components you routinely recommend to your patients? For example, a specific amount of exercise or a type of diet? Now, this is um, a very hot topic in the sense that the reality is many of our, many people who are diagnosed with diabetes there, you know, they clearly have excess uh, fat in their tissues, which is part of the pathogenesis of diabetes. In fact, it may be the main reason that they have type 2 diabetes because they have too much fat within, um, the, you know, within their various organ systems, particularly liver, muscle, perhaps, and perhaps pancreas. So we first of all have to explain to our, you know, to our, to our patients that actually type 2 diabetes is a disease of um, excess fat and that actually for some people if they're able to lose a modest amount of weight you know 5 to 10 kilograms that they're usually more than 10 kilograms that for some it's an option that they may actually no longer have type 2 diabetes if they're able to lose weight. Now that's been shown in the direct um, clinical trial which I, I was involved in led by Mike Lean and Roy Taylor and it certainly is an option for people who are motivated using low calorie diets uh, initially, followed by a reintroduction to food over time and hopefully a different composition of food to what they were used to. So I think that's now starting to be considered by people so that they're recognising that type 2 diabetes is reversible and it's linked to weight loss. And I think that understanding should provide many physicians around the world to be more motivated to, to encourage weight loss um, when they're patients. Um, because I think in the past we haven't done it really that well. Some people have managed to lose a little bit of weight, but we haven't really educated our, our, our patients very well. And I think the options of improving weight are increasing. Um, so there are a number of specific things that we now know do work. For example, referral to a commercial company uh, will help people lose weight if they're motivated. Um, some people might prefer the so 5-2 diet, for example, is a more intensive option. Um, 
However, for the majority, I think it may none of these options may be possible. But I think the way we talk about diet has to change in the future. Sometimes I think we give information too much information too quickly, um, and then and then the patients, you know, we pretend to give them a diet, and they in a sense pretend to follow it. Um, and it's a as a classic phase that uh, classic. Um, term that um, Professor Edwin Gill used in an editorial he wrote in Diabetologia, and that has to change. Now, how we do that, I think, needs a bit more discussion and development. But I would rather we now move to a point where we give people a list of different things that work. Um, and a simple example would be, you know, the simple thing would be uh, for some people, cut out sugary drinks. And that must be an obvious low-hanging fruit and, and start to drink diet drinks or water. And I think we also have to explain to people that that requires a little bit of retraining of their palate. Um, and another option might well be start to enjoy snacking with fruit or veg instead of, or, or and limit snacking with you know cakes, biscuits, sweets. Just again a little change. Um, a third option might be start to enjoy more salads with your main meals, for example. But anyway, we now know certain things def definitely do work, and if we were able to give these. A, a list of things and just encourage our patients to try one or two that fits their lifestyle or also fits what they think is an issue with, with their dietary intake or their or, or their food intake, then I think that's the way we should move forward. Because for some people, the big rapid change in diet is never going to happen. But what may well happen is one or two small changes that they can adapt and, and become sustainable. And once they've done that, that may give them the confidence to try something else. But certainly with lifestyle, diet changes, I think, are paramount. And then once they manage to lose a little bit of weight, I would then further encourage activity. I start to walk an extra 10 minutes a day if they can, maybe by monitoring the steps. So that's the way I think we're heading. Um, and of course, we have many different intensive options. And in terms of a particular diet, clearly, you know, we know Mediterranean diet. We, some people advocate the, you know, the kind of... Um, low carb diet i'm not a big fan of it per se but you know it can help some people but there are you know different options but um i think we have a range a toolbox of different options that will work and we just need to provide that in a way that is much easily more simpler and more digestible by our patients and and then tr encourage um trial and error i think that's what we should be moving towards um some of that is probably already within programs that we use but i think we can do it much better for many more of our patients and is there any other advice you would offer to diabetes professionals in helping to manage their patients' cardiovascular risk? The only other, clearly, the only other uh, factors to mention, of course, we now know clearly that keeping sugar down, you know, diagnosing diabetes earlier probably does benefit in terms of cardiovascular risk. Um, remembering that actually treating cholesterol and blood pressure will, will do more over the first short term then lowering sugar levels to prevent cardiovascular risk is important. And of course, in people who have high risk uh, or of existing disease, we now have a number of, uh, you know, two new classes of drugs that will further lower cardiovascular risk. And they are, um, you know, indicated in certain guidelines for certain patients with either existing cardiovascular disease or existing kidney disease or heart failure, or people at very high risk. And I think uh, we should be using uh, those drugs appropriately when um, the risk is high. So, so what we have in our toolbox is now expanded. So we've we've got we definitely know that losing weight will benefit cardiovascular risk, and we can encourage people to think about that. Uh, and we can do it better. We 
statins. Uh, we have beyond statins, we have vizetamide, which also lowers cholesterol. We have a range of blood pressure tablets. We have uh, a range of uh, oral hypoglycemic medications. We also now have another two classes, SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists, that will also lower cardiovascular risk or cardiorenal risk um, should we um, use them in people who are indicated for them based on current guidelines and consensus statements. So the toolbox is improving. And I think, um, again, it's education, but also we need to talk, uh, you know, we need to ask our patients what they prefer. So it's a, it's a team effort uh, between yourself and the patient, uh, explaining the benefits and the side effects and, and, and then trying to uh, educate and bring them along so that they actually have good compliance um, if they're brought into t trying certain medications to lower their risks. So I think I think that's the way we're heading. Do you have any final remarks you'd like to share with our audience? Clearly, COVID has had a huge impact on the on many aspects of medical care, including um, many people are struggling with the lockdown, putting on weight, and being less physically active. In my clinical patients, you know, in my so in my clinic, sorry, many of my patients are struggling and putting on weight um, because they're not commuting to work and they are, you know, eating because they're anxious or they're just bored. So, and equally at the same time, in our people, in our patients with diabetes, we're having less testing done because they're not obviously having uh, normal GP services, normal clinic clinics, and we're not measuring blood pressures, we're not measuring cholesterol levels, we're not measuring glycemic levels, we're not diagnosing new diabetes. So over the next year, uh, once hopefully, God forbid, you know, we get you know, sorry, to the point where COVID is passed <clears throat> or under control, we, I think we're going to see a huge rise in the number of new diagnoses of diabetes, a huge rise in people who have poorer control. So we really do need to then up our game in terms of lifestyle and the toolbox of medications to try and reverse some of the harm done by COVID and to bring our patients back to an equilibrium to lower their risk going forward. But that's going to be a huge task, not just in the UK, but uh, around the world. Thanks very much again for joining us. This brings us to the end of this week's episode. In summary, a multifactorial approach is important to help manage cardiovascular risk in people with diabetes. This can be through appropriate pharmacotherapy and lifestyle interventions that are manageable and helpful for patients on an individual basis. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also find links to all the references discussed today in the episode notes, as well as links to our social media accounts and website, where you can find more free and accredited CME content. Join us for the next episode when we'll be discussing optimal collaboration between diabetes specialists and cardiologists.